Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a return guest we have for you today. George Saunders is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 11 books, including A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, Lincoln and the Bardo, which won the Booker Prize. Congratulations, by the way, 10th of December and the Brain Dead Megaphone. He teaches in the creative writing program at Syracuse University, and his newest story collection is called Liberation Day. Welcome back, George. Nice to be back. Thank, thanks, for, thanks for having me. It feels like the world has changed a lot since you put out your last story collection in 2013. Oh boy, yeah, it has. I, I, I'm wondering, like, maybe that's how it always feels, that the world's changing so quickly, but it seems like so many of the themes you've been writing about for so many years and your stories are really just kind of coming to the forefront. Yeah, I feel I, I, it's really true. I, you know, I had a, a friend, though, who reminded me recently that she was a young woman uh, in 68, 69, you know, and, uh, you know, that uh, Dr. King was assassinated and Kennedy and the My Life Massacre. And so she was kind of, I think, counseling me to come off the ledge a bit. And, you know, <laughs> things are changing, but 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 they always do. But yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think at this stage of life, especially these last few years were weird because, you know, you're kind of, uh, I guess, at 63, you're kind of thinking, okay, I got this. I understand how it works. I've got my value system works for me, blah, blah, blah. And then so many things shifted, you know, um, uh, as we all know, and, and that really is kind of destabilizing. And I'm trying to tell myself that it's kind of fun, you know, that it's good to be jolted out of your complacency and all that, but ha it hasn't always, <laughs> always felt fun, you know? Yeah. No, I, yeah. I really feel like um, the idea at least of that we're in late stage capitalism, the idea yeah. that we're all beholden to these four enormous companies for just about everything. Yeah. You can catch my uh, podcast on iTunes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. And, you know, it's it's one of, I think the other thing that happens happened to me is that you, you realize that, okay, when I was younger, I would see injustice and go, that sucks. They should stop that, you know. Uh, and I guess I assume within my lifetime that would happen. Then as you get older, you kind of see that you're complicit in a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Uh, so it's a rich feeling, but it's also, for me, it's a bit of a paralyzing feeling because the, the easy solutions seem to not, they don't seem to be any. Um, so it's, it's interesting, you know, to kind of, I, I guess what happens is you sort of experience the limits of your own power, don't you? You know, you kind of think, well, I know that I would like the world to be different. I'm doing my best, uh, but it may have plans of its own and I'm just riding along on it, which is sort of terrifying. But I, I'm also finding maybe a little bit, uh, it gives me a little bit of that feeling you get on a roller coaster when you're about to go down and you're like, uh oh, this is too big, <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> so certainly it feels like you feel alive, but not not in control. You know? Yeah. And, and I do, I, I feel like we talked about this when we discussed Swim in the Pond in the Rain, that good fiction, of course, doesn't always have a clear answer or an easy answer. And if we're just thinking about the questions that it raises, we're, we're doing something well. Yeah, um, I, th I think that's right. It puts you in a position at least of being a little more honest about the questions, you know, and, and um, sometimes for me, it just puts me into this state where the, what I'm really saying is, oh yeah, it is that way. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. You know, which is different than saying I have an answer, but maybe it's a, well, it's just honest, I guess. Yeah, the world is like that sometimes. And so, you know, in a certain way, we kind of devalue the world when we act as if it's a a problem that those other idiots have never fixed, but now I'm going to. (laughs) So, so let's dive into the stories. Um, Better. (laughs) (laughs) So the title story takes up a lot of real estate in the collection. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading it, I thought this feels familiar. And then I I went back and, and Googled and saw that you had said that this is very much based on like Semplica Girls meets the Turgenev story that we discussed in. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, it was kind of more like those ideas were floating around. It was it was that one long winter uh I think where we were just waiting for vaccines and we were upstate and it was cold and there was a ton of snow on the ground. So I was writing on this back porch and I just was like, I want to do something really crazy. What might it be? And um, I was working on a screenplay with this, the wonderful Richard Iowati for uh, Semco Girl Diaries, which um, and so that story would kind of come alive for me again. I'm like, that's a pretty good idea. You know, this idea of, of uh, using other human beings bodies for one's amusement, really, you know, um so i that was in the air and then i had that just that phrase the singers from that story in my mind um and then yeah so then i just started you know like the technical phrase would be farting around like just you know (laughs) typing like okay what uh there's a guy he's on a wall what's he doing there he's really he's got a chemical or some kind of brain implant that makes him a really good talker huh weird you know so it was really just um i think sort of like midwinter doldrum was like let's do something really nutty you know and then it uh it just got nuttier you know the whole time and uh and i've learned to really respect there's a certain flavor of nuttiness it's not purely random you know it's coming from somewhere and when i get on that i'm just like okay don't don't be too literal just keep nurturing this and seeing what it what it wants to say not what you want to say but what it wants to say and then Custer got in there, and I don't know, you know. It's funny. Yeah, the the Battle of Little Bighorn seems like something that you must have researched thoroughly. Yeah, for like, I mean, when I was in college, I had a, I, I can't, I come to Syracuse from Amarillo, Texas, and I've been playing in a bar band and working as a groundsman. So I was really like a rube and uh, got out there and just was outgunned by so many, on so many levels, you know, by the other students, by the material. and. So there's this one professor who just, I think he sort of saw that, you know, he saw that I, I had some potential, but I was out of my element. And uh, so he just started jokingly calling me Custer because I had kind of a Custer-esque mullet at that point. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was just, I mean, I, you know, I knew who Custer was and I knew that maybe wasn't exactly praised, but it was, it was, he noticed me, you know. Uh, and at some point he must have recommended that Son of the Morning Star, Evan S. Connell, a great book. And so I read that and then starting then I just it was such a tragic weird day and a half you know in American history and so many people died and they died uh, unexpectedly and pretty brutally you know and um, on both sides of the fight so so yeah so I just started reading it kind of like the same way I did Lincoln all those years ago just as a sort of a you know uh, old dude hobby I guess you know history channel mind um, yeah so when it came time to drop that in I really knew a lot about it I've been reading a lot about it recently and uh, it was just right there at my fingertips, you know. So that's incredible. And then, and so then, the this history lesson is is filtered 
through these speakers and singers who we know something is off or wrong. <laughs> yes, because they're they're pinioned up in this guy's living room, basically, and they just hang there until he's ready to. It's, they're like sort of like human stereos in a way. They're just up there and. <laughs> Some days they'll just be there quietly for three, you know, three or four days in a row, and then he comes in and wants to put on a show for his friends, and so it's quite brutal, you know. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, not no, and yeah, it's just quite brutal. And it, I, I like the note that he gave, uh, that that Mister Yu gives to the speakers and, and singers, and that this isn't just about Custer's last stand. Of course, this is about the indigenous americans yeah he doesn't he doesn't say that but who who also died and and having their point of view is important and yes. so you give it to us <laughs> yeah and he actually it's funny because one of the the things that you know just appeared in that story that was interesting was the people i kind of thought would be the villains were and yet sometimes they were pretty good like the, the person who gives the that Mr. Yu that notice his son who's a little bit annoying you know annoyingly um I don't know what you really call him but he's 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 a little too pure you know and so he gives that note and we go yeah actually that's a good point the father takes the note makes the adjustment and then the son later does something that he thinks is pretty virtuous so so it was kind of like as I was writing it I kept saying to myself whose side are you on you know and the clever part of myself said, shut up, I'm not telling you, you know, you let's let's see if we can get these people to do all kinds of contradictory things. So we don't really know where we stand. You know, I was really feeling adult son Mike's entire vibe. At the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <he's>... <laughs> <laughs> that poor guy, he, he ends up in a bad way at the end. Yeah, no, but that was so interesting, you know, just to kind of um, I mean, for me, all of this stuff is just play, it's got to be playful. And that's the way there's something about you know, being in the pandemic and everything was so off limits at that point. And we were up in the, you know, up in the Catskills and nowhere to go. And um, it was just a really nice, as dark as the story is, the, the writing of it was deeply enjoyable because I was just playing, just trying to see what, you know, you've been writing fiction all these years. What's the wildest thing you can come up with? And can you, can you bring it home? You know, that kind of feeling. And, and, and of course, if the, the story within the story is that, treating others as subhuman <laughs> you get your ass kicked you get your <laughs> yeah. ass kicked sometimes you sometimes you know yeah <laughs> yeah and so for me the, the real thing was knowing that story kind of from the inside you know from all these years then trying to find a way for it to speak uh to the outer story that wasn't too on the nose you know that was had a little bit of, of, of complexity and in motion and so that was yeah it was it was really a lot of fun it really felt like sort of stretching out all the muscles and you know i love that just like the uh singers and uh, speakers have to be stretched out yeah they have to <laughs> <laughs> well that yeah that was the other thing is i thought well i'm kind of him i mean that's kind of uh, you know i'm definitely you know somebody huh. who is quiet for a long time and every so often i say something good you know or say something long anyway you know and <laughs> then i go back quiet again and, uh, and and you know so much of my self-worth is dependent on the idea that i can <clears throat> write stories that are good you know tell stories and so there's definitely a, a little bit of identification there <laughs> <laughs> love it um the mom of bold action is is the second story and i listened to it because tina fey mm. 
read the version in the audiobook. Wasn't that good? It was so good. Yeah. It was so good. And I, I think having her read it in all of her glory made me really think about what white feminism looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but one of the things I loved about this book was just it, it was so many chances to kind of strip away my light, late life certainty. You know, as you get older, you there's something... Uh, you feel like you should have more answers than you actually do. So you start, you know, kind of mansplaining and, and having having sort of rigid positions about people and things. And um, and it's kind of anxiety reducing to be sure about stuff, you know, but in fiction, that isn't that doesn't really play. So um, that story in particular, I was like, I don't know how I feel about her. And now I'm OK with that. I'm going to keep looking at her from different angles and in the end you know maybe i'll see her a little more completely and also maybe i'll be a little more merciful with her and other people like her in the world you know by other people like her you mean writers no no i just know <laughs> I, I mean, I mean actually it means with me because i made her up I, I gave her everything she did wrong i made her do you know so uh i think more patient with just our, our our little pathetic attempts to be moral we try so hard you know and maybe in in this world and with late stage capitalism and so on it's just almost impossible to um to to figure what's the best path you know is there a path that doesn't impact other people is there a path that allows me to have some fun without feeling guilty about it is there any way i could actually um know what the repercussions of an action were all that kind of stuff and you know to her credit god love her she does try she struggles she's got a real conscience um so i just like being with her i like to just sort of because I was giving her my mind, you know, like my neuroses and my Catholic guilt and stuff and, you know, just enjoying her. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the the next story is feels like the embodiment of the idea that we don't entirely know what to do. Yeah. That, that love letter. Is that the next one? Love letter. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Tell that, me about writing that because that feels different. Yeah, it's definitely more. I mean, it's not autobiographical, but it started out to be just a, a data dump of my agitation before the election and my sense that I, you know I wasn't doing enough. And um, so then I, I'd had this. I'd had arguments with two different people that I care about. One is to the right of me, and one is to the left of me. Which that's kind of hard to get there, but this person was. And both of those are kind of spirited. I think of them as like Chicago style fights, you know, like in Chicago, we used to just tear into each other and it was always with affection and you could always come back from it. And so I I started thinking just about that, that how in times like these, uh, one of the most important things we have is a, um, a way to vent feelings that we have, and maybe we're not sure of them. And maybe some of them aren't entirely correct or appropriate even, but you have to say them and work through them and have somebody push back in a good spirit and not write you off entirely and so on. So I just thought, oh, I'd like to try to write a letter to somebody about what I'm going through right now and my own feelings of inadequacy and stuff. So I just made up a grandson, basically, you know, and made myself a little bit older, not much. Uh, and then just kind of talk to that kid, you know, and it would be like 15 or 20 years from now and things had really gone into the shitter. And now I'm like, yeah, so I was writing books at that time. Uh, you know, we, we had bought a new Volvo and, uh, yeah, we didn't quite, uh, see it coming there, buddy, you know, 
Um, so that was just the start of it. And it was pretty quick. I just I felt great to be getting all that stuff out in an honest way. Mm -hmm. And then when it ran in New Yorker, there was a lot of really nice um, feedback of the, yeah, me too variety. You know, yeah, I feel that way too. Uh, so I thought that's kind of good. You know, that's a nice thing to reach out and pat somebody's hand across the distance and say, yeah, this is, that's how it is, you know. Absolutely. And yeah, how to behave now is, feels like the big question, right? Like, oh. as you relay in Love Letter, like, calling your senator and going to marches doesn't entirely help, nor, you know, donating to political causes feels... Right. So, so then what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I that is kind of a scary, another little precipice moment is the thought that, well, you know, sometimes things just go to shit. They, they, of course they do, historically. But then on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, okay, so I have to think that that is a possibility. But meantime, the one thing that seems impermissible is despair, you know, e even inactivity is better than despair, inactivity in, a, in an alert, positive state. But to sort of say, ah, it's all been crap from the beginning and we can't fix it. And or you know, I, that I think is is concession, you know, so. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm just kind of saying to myself, this is a weird period, it's a hard period. I'm not the only person who feels that we all feel it. Uh, so maybe it's a moment before some kind of, um, I don't know, breakthrough or accretion or something, you know, because I don't feel like I can be this despairing or this, this sort of confused for too long, you know, and um, so I don't know, I don't know, I'm just rambling because I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, I really don't know. No, 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 no one knows. But that, yeah, that was really comforting to yeah. <laughs> to identify with that. Yeah, um, one of, one of the things that that grandfather does actually, as I'm thinking about it, is he he. What I liked about that story was that he starts off being pretty sure that the right thing to do is stay the hell out of it, keep yourself out of danger because I love you, grandson. Mm -hmm. uh, isn't life pretty good? Just be keep your head down, you know. And then over the course of the story, I think he kind of talks himself out of it, yeah. you know, by describing how beautiful the world used to be and his love for his grandson and realizing that actually this grandson has a lot more dog in the fight than he at first knew. So I thought art artistically or, or um, yeah, aesthetically, what I liked was the way his voice starts to fall apart in that last couple of paragraphs where he's like, I have some money if you want it, <laughs> you know, like that. So I don't know. It's always an adventure. Absolutely. The following story, A Thing at Work, felt the most realistic, mm -hmm. um, both in that there aren't many fantastical, any fantastical elements to it, and in terms of, you know, how how our society works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was when I kind of put it in the lineage with stories like The Falls or, or Winky, you know, which were, they're, mm -hmm. they're a little over the top in some of the voices, but basically we're sticking to what could actually happen. Um, yeah, and that was again, another one that really opened up to me at the end. I was kind of a little bit, I'm always a little bit insecure when there's nothing crazy going on. I, I feel like I'm not a really a very good realist writer, um, but I kind of waited that one out. And, and um, yeah, kind of for me, it kind of turned out to be about power, you know, in the way that um you know power is powerful you, you we can talk about power intellectually but when it's it's got its foot on your throat then it's a different thing you, you know you you feel it so in this story i just felt it was one of the things i really liked about it was that i tricked myself uh with that character of brenda like i i she's sometimes really an object of fun you know and you and we find ourselves kind of like 
not liking or rooting against her. And then a minute later, you're like, oh, wait a minute, that's that's a poor woman with no options. And I'm laughing at her. Oh, that's not good. Uh, and then she'll do something real snotty or, you know, kind of she kind of, uh, you know, she kind of is the one who escalates this at one point. And I think, oh, don't do that. I don't blame you, but don't. So anyway, it's 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 fun when your stories start. And, you know, none of that happens early. It happens late as I as I figure it out. And when it something pops into place, it's always fun to feel like, oh, that's the real world right there. That's that's it. That's how it happens, you know. It was so real that, um, and and I, I'm I'm saying this for listeners who might uh, understand that um, back when I was an editorial assistant, uh, notorious book publishing salaries, I would regularly have to steal uh, paper towels and toilet paper from. Oh, good. Oh, from well, I, th I thank you for opening up about that. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I I did the same. You know, there was someone, and I mean, there was a whole thing where like. They had these coffee packets that were not right for home, but you could open them. You know, you could cut them open and so on. Yeah, no, that's or you're also markers. I love or um, they had these really wonderful red pens that were great <laughs> to edit with, and those would sometimes get stockpiled. <laughs> so. I mean, office supplies, but it it really does go to show that you know some people get away with it. Yeah, that's for me. That was the deeper part of the story. Was that <clears throat> that you know. She gets nailed for stealing, but everybody in the story is stealing a little bit. And it's almost like the the, the small thieves will get published, punished and the big ones can kind of just walk, walk it off or write it off, you know? Yeah. Very lame is Rob. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let, let's move I'm gonna on. I'm going to put that on the book cover. I like that. Very lame is Rob. <laughs> um, Sparrow is such a beautiful story, but I'm going to move on and and let's talk about Ghoul. Okay. Because to me, this feels like another one of the kinds of stories that I expect from you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell meaning, me about... Meaning what, Maris? Meaning what exactly? Um, wild world building. Mm -hmm. Um a little bit of understanding that fascism exists. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that, no, that's right. Cause I, I had read the audiobook for Civil War Land. It didn't, I didn't do it when it first came out cause there was no such thing. Uh, but I read it and I just was kind of like, oh, that's a funny book. That's a weird voice. You know, I wonder if I could still do it. Uh, and so I just went home really, I, I often would just give myself the, the most small little assignments, just write a story in that voice, you know, or, or um, uh, yeah, so so that was it. I just started writing something that I thought would sound like that first book. And sure enough, it opened up all these avenues, mostly about, I guess, capitalism or something. But, um, you know, I'm mostly just looking for a voice that I can do reliably for a few pages with some fun. And then once I do that, the story will start to make itself. I don't have to, I, I'm much better off if I don't think about politics or ethics or morality. I'm just trying to make some fun. And in that one, it, it actually was interesting because it kind of got out of control. I was in a middle period where the story was, I was making progress, but I was like, what the hell are you about? Are you about that it's not nice to kick people to death? I think we know that, you know? And so then if you just bear with it, it'll it'll eventually say, you know, I'm, I was I was trying to be deep all along and I was trying to be meaningful. But it takes, for me, it's sometimes a lot of just revising and revising and waiting and being patient and faithful. And at the end, it'll go, see, see, I wasn't going to let you down. 
And and I like the idea of I you know reading it very close to love letter and thinking about when is the time to act? When does it make sense at all? Yes. When when yes. is it much safer to keep one set down? Well, and also you know, and I mean this is not at all the intention, but but reading stuff from inside Russia now, and you you see that the yeah. uh, it's also you you just may be in a uh, an information universe that is just not telling you the truth, and so you could be doing, you could participate in something that's very terrible and not even be aware of it unless you were super alert, you know, uh, and had really been prepared in these kind of things. So um, I kind of feel like every day I'm not doing something really fucked up. I'm so grateful, you know, and and maybe anyway, you know, we don't know, but um, it's just a guy who's about to go on book tour in the moment of climate change, you know, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Are, Are you doing a full tour? Yeah, like 14. We counted flights yesterday, Paul and I. It's uh, 14, 14 flights. So it's in the U.S. and, and England. So, um, yeah, so that'll be, I mean, it'll be fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's been, been, a, been a, a while before I've done that, since I've done that. Yeah, yeah. I, I will leave you off here because I don't want to, to go too long. There are many other stories. There are a few other stories in the book. That <laughs> there are 800 additional stories that we haven't discussed in the book. It's quite a yes, long book. Indeed, indeed. Um, but this was so wonderful to catch up with you. Before we go, um, will you recommend some books for us? I will. Um, I The one that I read most recently is called The Storm is Here by Luke Mogelson. And he's a New Yorker reporter, and he just followed the entire evolution of the January 6th thing. You know, he was embedded in, uh, he must be an amazing reporter because everybody talks to him. They, they give him all their stuff. And he's so um, good-hearted and yet dispassionate. He lets people tell their stories. And it's, it's, I mean, for me, I felt like I was despairing at not being able to understand what's happening in the country politically, that book made me feel better because at least I kind of understand it or I, I can have seen it from the inside. So that was a great one. Uh, and then somehow I had missed um, uh, the book of Night Women by Marlon James when it came out. And that is just astonishing. I mean, he's like a Faulkner level uh, prose master. Uh, so that's been really wonderful. Um, I read a really interesting book of stories called Insurrections by uh, Rianne Amalcar Scott. Uh, I, I think it's the first or second book, and it's it's really riveting. And then I'm reading Kelly Link's uh, White Cat, uh, Black Dog. She, yeah, she's amazing. So that's and then I've been sort of just um, you know I'm doing that story club. So I've just been trying to read a couple stories a day from different best of collections, just to sort of you know mix it up a bit. And that's been fun to go back to like uh, Zora Neale Hurston and. Um, Grace Paley and Eudora Wealthy and uh, uh, James Baldwin and just, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, just drop in and go, okay, a random story about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And then you go, oh my God. (laughs) So those are the books I've been working on, you know, recently. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.